eating meat has quickly become one of the most controversial personal choices of recent times. It's estimated that 22% of the world's population are vegetarian, with plant-based diets expanding rapidly all across the Western world over the last decade. Beyond the ethical concerns of animal welfare, an increasing number of people are switching to plant-based diets due to the dangerous environmental effects of meat production. The data generated by animal agribusiness is mind-boggling. Raising livestock for meat, eggs and milk is estimated to generate over 14% of global greenhouse gases, the second highest source of emissions and greater than all transport combined. Animal farming also uses around 70% of agricultural land and is one of the leading causes of deforestation, biodiversity loss and water pollution. So with our need to significantly reduce the environmental toll of animal farming and a strong reluctance to change our daily lives, could science provide the ultimate way to save our bacon? Welcome to Racing Green, the podcast that explores the ideas, innovations, and influences making waves in the journey towards a sustainable future for our planet. In each episode, we investigate the new challenges, ingenious solutions, and the undiscovered opportunities that lie at the heart of our rapidly changing world. We aim to accelerate a new era founded on optimism and impactful collective responsibility. Today we chat with Richard Dillon, CEO of Ivy Farm Technologies, a revolutionary cultivated meat production company developing the technology to grow real meat at scale without farming, giving us the power to enjoy real meat free from environmental damage or animal welfare concerns. Welcome, Rich. Hi, Jeffrey. Thanks for having me. Fantastic to have you here on the show. I wonder if you give us a little bit of a background on yourself and how you created Ivy Farm. Well, the story about myself is pretty boring. I'll get into that. I think the Ivy Farm story is much more interesting. Look, I'm a middle-aged guy who has had a career in fast-moving consumer goods. So I started my career in Procter & Gamble, uh, marketing the likes of washing powder and, um, and diapers uh, in the UK and in the US. And it was a great company for, for training about what consumers need uh, and consumer insights and how to create products that, you know, address those needs. I then moved on to Red Bull Energy Drink, probably had one or two in your time. I thought it was going to be a flash in the pan, but I was there 13 years in a, a whole number of roles across the world. And I was head of uh, global sales at the end. And then um, I moved on to a, uh, a craft beer company in the US and took them international. Uh, they ended up getting bought by Heineken. And it was at that point where um, I realized I'm pretty good at doing uh, kind of commercial stuff and taking products to market. But are the products, you know, really making a difference to the world? And, you know, do we need another beer truly? Do we need another soft drink? Um, and that's when I started uh, getting involved in products that are either, you know, good for the planet, better for the planet, or better for human health. And uh, one of the uh, companies I got involved with is, is Ivy Farm. The co-founders invited me to be part of the board. Um, I fell in love very quickly. And then quite soon after, 
they asked me to be CEO and, and drive the commercials forward. And uh, yeah, I jumped at the chance. So uh, it's been an amazing ride so far. When was that? When was Ivy Farm created? So Ivy Farm was created uh, early 2020. Yeah, wow. Um, so it's, yeah, just, just three years old. It's still quite young. It was spun out of Oxford University uh, with some technology. Uh, and the two co-founders, one is a, a brilliant ex-PhD student from Oxford University called Russ Tucker. Um, he went into consulting after university and he was um, consulting for, you know, large supermarkets, uh, not only in the UK, but international, uh, and advising them on their fresh food strategy, including meat. And it was the time of the, the horse gate stamp scandal, Jeffrey, yes. in the UK, if you're aware of that. You know, people didn't realize that there was horse meat in their food. They thought they were eating beef and other things. And it, and it highlighted to him the fragility of the meat supply chain uh, and the lack of traceability. Um, you know, you don't know what the animal's eaten. You don't know if they've had antibiotics. Sometimes you don't know what the animal is. Um, and so he had this idea to, to go back to Oxford University, met a professor called Kathy Yee in the engineering department, and she had some technology that could speed up and help the cultivated meat process from a, from a really unique angle. And so that's how the, the company was formed. It got some seed funding, uh, and then I joined the board late 2020, early 21. And then uh, we got some more funding, and then I was asked to become CEO in, uh, in mid-21. Now, you say you've got a solution here, one that's very environmentally friendly and has other benefits in terms of not cruel to animals, et cetera. So what really is the problem when it comes to meat and the environment? Yeah, good question, Jeffrey. Look, I think uh, people in, are starting to understand that maybe um, industrially farmed meat is not great for the environment. But I don't think people quite grasp the scale of the issue. So um, if I was to say... What gives off more greenhouse gases as a sector? Is it all of transportation, so every car, plane, boat, and, and train, or is it animal agriculture? The majority of people usually say transport because they hear a ton about it, right? Tesla and charging stations and, and everything else, flying taxis with, with electric batteries. Um, but actually, it's animal agriculture. Agriculture is the second biggest sector for emitting greenhouse gases and, and causing climate change. And animal agriculture is the lion's share of that, um, more, more than transport. And so we need more solutions. We, we don't just need incremental solutions. We need uh, revolutionary innovation that, that can turn the tables on this, which is why cultivated meat we think is so exciting. You know, to put it into perspective, just in terms of greenhouse gases, it's, it's about 18%. Uh, of global greenhouse gases. I think transport is 14%. There's only the energy sector that's bigger. And then you get into things like land use. You know, close to 80% of uh, agricultural land globally is given over to animal agriculture. So either the husbandry raising the animals or growing the feed that's given to animals. So 80%, yet it only produces less than 20% of the world's calories and less than 40% of the world's protein. It doesn't make sense 
from greenhouse gas, the pollution that it emits to the land use and also and also the water use. I think one statistic which blows me away every time is that, you know, if I eat two hamburgers, two, two half pound hamburgers, I could uh, have a shower every day for half a year. And the water that I, that I use for that shower is the same amount as is needed to produce those two beef burgers, two half pound beef burgers. It, it's kind of amazing how inefficient um, animal agriculture is. So, so that's why we're excited to try and, you know, be one of the solutions to help the protein transition. Great. So I wonder if you'd walk us through the process of cultivated meat. How does it work? Well, the first thing to say about cultivated meat is it's real meat. It's not plant-based. It's not trying to be an alternative meat in that respect. We take a, a small sample of cells from an animal. We started working with pork. We're also working with chicken and beef now. But let's say a small sample of cells from a pig. Our technology allows us to identify the specific cells that we want, pure muscle and pure fat, in a stem cell form. And those specific cells can basically then be trained to grow outside the animal. We can put them in stainless steel fermentation tanks in a growth media, which is you know, liquid with all the nutrients at the right temperature. And if we make the process in just the right way, then in less than three weeks, from just a handful of starting cells, we can grow kilos and kilos of meat. Pure muscle, pure fat to be the healthiest kind of minced meat out there. And it's, it's really exciting. It's not only healthy for humans, but healthy for the planet because we're only growing the cells we want. It's much more efficient. And a, a life cycle study, Jeffrey has said that it's about 90% more efficient than, let's say, currently farmed beef which means, you know, less greenhouse gas emissions, but also 90% less land use and less water use. So think that, you know, that land can be repurposed for carbon capture. It's kind of a double win. Wow. Sounds too good to be true. Yeah, right. How does it taste? Well, it's, it's funny. People ask me that. And uh, it was the exact same question when I was getting into this. Oh, what does it taste like? Because it is... Because it's uh, animal cells, because it is meat, then it tastes like meat. The, the texture is the part that's a little different. Because we only grow pure muscle and only pure fat, what people normally experience in their mouth with mince are some kind of gristly bits, right? And that's, you know, from a normal meat production, you get the ligaments, you get the bits of cartilage, you get the, the kind of stuff that maybe if you were choosing from an animal, you wouldn't take. But we're used to it now, a texture in the mouth. And so what we produce is kind of more smooth and a more paste-like product to start with. But then, of course, you know, our development chefs turn that into things that we're used to. Sausages, meatballs, gyozas are my personal favorite. And it tastes exactly like uh, we're used to, Jeffrey, which is, which is really nice. So, that, so we can create fillet steak? That's harder. That's a good question, though. You know, the, the, one of the reasons I got into this is I tried to become vegan and vegetarian quite a few times, and I keep falling off the wagon uh, and relapsing, and I, and I figured out I really do love meat. I love bacon sandwiches. I love fillet steaks every now and again. So I'm what's called a reluctant reducer, 
And when I first got in, I thought, could I still have my fillet steak in the future and not feel guilty about it? And and it comes from a cultivated meat production platform. I think the possibilities in the future are there. Jeffrey, there's 3D printers uh, that you you can um, turn into using animal cells to then you know, grow, grow more full-cut, whole-cut products. But the technology is not quite there yet, at least to scale it. So at first, we're focused on mincemeat yep. products, which is um, a lot simpler and, frankly, is, is going to take a lot less time to get to not only scale, but a cost that consumers can live with. So is this process accepted by the vegan community? Does it open up the possibility of not harming animals at all, or at least not at that scale? We've had some discussions with the the vegan society, for example. Um, But I think it's worth saying, look, the vast majority of humans on Earth are meat eaters and, and flexitarians. One of the reasons why we created Ivy Farm and why we believe in it so much is that the transition from traditional meat over to a plant-based diet isn't happening fast enough. You know, a lot of the plant-based meat alternatives, I think, had really high expectations. And you can see that uh, in the markets, it's not quite, the sales are not quite growing as they want. And I think it's to do with uh, taste. You know, it doesn't quite cut the mustard. Getting back to your point, the target market for our, our products, probably not vegans. Uh, it, it's probably the, the bigger majority, which are people that love meat, but are reluctantly reducing their meat intake because of reasons such as planetary climate change, yep. animal ethics, or, or human health. Having said that, if you are vegetarian because of animal ethics, then it gives you another reason potentially to come and, and reconsider. Uh, or if you're vegetarian because of uh, planetary issues, you think that it's using too much resources in, in traditional or industrial farming, then again, that, tick, that box is ticked. And so it gives them a, a potential to eat meat and, and not feel so guilty about it. But that wouldn't be our primary market, Jeffrey. Could this extend into other forms of protein, for example, fish? There are cultivated meat companies out there uh, I could probably give a shout out to Blue Nalu, um, company over in San Diego that I, I think are doing a great job, um, who are cultivating uh, fish cells. Yeah. And so mammals and fish have quite a different biology. Uh, and so I don't know any company that's doing both yet. But we understand that our um, cell platform that we have is multi-species, so we've done it across multiple mammals. And I think in future we will uh, try with fish or potentially work with partners that are experts in fish. So, yeah, there could be a future where, you know, we don't have to slaughter the 80 billion animals that are currently being slaughtered every year or the 2 trillion fish that are being uh, fished either from the sea or from fisheries. And I think that future will be a much more positive one. Yeah. Are we still at prototype or is this commercially available right now? Yeah, good question. And I think the answer is we're right on that cusp. We're kind of at the end of R&D, at least in Ivy Farms life cycle, uh, and we're into scaling up. So behind me, I know this is a podcast, so if it's just the, uh, if it's just the words coming through, I apologize, but I think you can see the webcam here. Yeah. Behind me, I'm in Ivy Farms 
headquarters. We're based in Oxford. Um, and in the headquarters, we have a pilot plant. We think it's the biggest pilot plant in Europe. And I think what you can see there, the lighting's not great through the oh, window. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. There's several steel, uh, what we call bioreactors. They're basically fermenters. It looks like a craft brewery, but instead of uh, brewing beer, we're brewing meat. And um, we can produce kilos, you know, let's say in this run here, around 20 kilos of meat from that one 600-litre uh, tank behind us. Uh, and actually, they're just um, they're just seeding that tank, so they're just about to go to the final step in the fermenter process, and we will harvest and have some tasty uh, meat products next week. So I think I don't know if that answers the question, but we're at pilot stage of of going commercial. We will be able to apply for regulatory approval um, from this pilot plant here, but in order to truly make an impact on what is a huge meat market. 340 million tons of meat a year or 1.4 trillion dollars we're going to need bigger factories with much bigger tanks which will uh yeah be able to to churn out that healthy mincemeat what do you think the, the barriers to be to doing that scaling up what's going to prevent you from realizing this incredible opportunity when i came into this there were three things that i thought were the kind of core barriers and because i'm a consumer um, person, a marketing person, I thought that the consumer acceptance would be the biggest one, Jeffrey. I thought then regulation would be the second. And I thought then the technology, the ability to scale it up and bring the cost down while maintaining quality would be the third. What I've found is when we've engaged consumers, so we've done a consumer study and we've also done some tastings, the consumer study said that 63% of people in the UK, and it was representative sample, were interested to try cultivated meat. Now, when you throw terms around like lab-grown meat, which is somehow referred to, and, and you know, science meat, these kind of things, of course, there's then a, hang on, what do you mean? But when you describe the process of cultivated meat and, and how we do it, 63%, I think it was, were, were interested to try. And even at a premium, we were looking at close to 50% then willing to buy, at least first time to, 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 to try, which was really encouraging. We then went up to COP26, which was in Edinburgh last year. I think we've just had COP27 in Egypt, right? So last year we got uh, invited to a side event and cooked the world's first cultivated meat hot dog, which was very exciting. And we did it with a TikTok chef. Um, and she was she was awesome. She's called Poppy O'Toole, or Poppy Cooks is her uh, TikTok name. And um, she has 2 million followers, and she streamed it live on TikTok. And I was a bit worried, thinking, oh, my God, what's the reaction going to be? But because it was primarily younger consumers tuning in, the you know we had over 90% positive sentiment. And, and the questions being asked is, that's so cool. When can we have it? I'd love to taste it. And so what it says to me, Jeffrey, is I think – at least in the Western world, I think the younger consumers are going to be really interested in this, are going to see the, the positive benefits and will be the first target, target market. So the barrier of consumer acceptance, I, I, don't, I think, is, is lower than, 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 than people think. I think young consumers will go there. And because consumers want it, I think regulators will, you know, the, they, they need to go through the process of making sure that all the food that they put on the market is approved safe and um, 
We've already seen in Singapore a cultivated meat product on the market and approved. And we've just recently seen the FDA in the US approve a, a chicken product or give a, a green light. They have no more safety questions. And so we're just on the cusp of this whole industry being approved regulatory-wise. So for Ivy Farm, I think it's a case of when and not if. So those two first barriers I feel really good about. The third one of technology is the one we need to crack now. So how do we... It's never been done before. We've never grown cells from an animal outside of an animal in such large scales that we need to, to create you know, large-scale food systems. But it's possible. We're doing it in steel tanks. We're doing it in fermentation vessels now. It's how big can we go? And all of our modeling suggests it can be a little bit like beer. We can get to 20,000 liters. We can get to 200,000 liters. And we're on that journey along with a, no a number of other companies. And then the, you know, within that technology piece, it's no good producing meat if it's too expensive for people to buy. So it's bringing the cost down. And currently the, the barriers to cost are the nutrients that we feed ourselves, they, the only kind of supply chain we can buy from right now is the biopharmaceutical industry. Uh, they grow some mammalian cells for, to produce antibodies and, and, and vaccines, things like this. And so that's the only kind of food source we can get. And so we're kind of working with food grade and feed grade uh, providers in order to get the source of the food for the cells, you know, just a lot, lot cheaper. And I don't think that's that difficult. It's just work, Jeffrey, and it's just proving that this will be a success and then the supply chain will be set up. You mentioned efficiency. So how much material goes into creating a kilo of cultivated meat? That's the right question, I think, to ask. So I, the first thing to say is, you know, livestock, so mammals are generally, as a technology, if you think about them as technology, they're fundamentally inefficient at taking plant-based calories in and turning it into plant-based calories out or protein in the form of flesh. And the technology of livestock has fundamentally not changed for like 10,000 years, right? Since small farms and animal husbandry started to, 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 to begin. And so incremental efficiencies have happened over the years. Things like selective breeding of animals to get them, you know, bulkier. Antibiotics would be another one, so they don't get sick and bulk up quicker. Animal diet, and of course, industrial animal farm facilities, which from an ethics point of view is, is, is difficult to, to see and watch. They're all aimed at kind of bulking up the animal quicker and therefore slaughtering the animal faster. But they're incremental, right? It's, it's nothing fundamentally changing the efficiency and effectiveness. Even, even right now, I think chickens are up to about five times larger than they were in the 1950s, but still they're inefficient. So, so here are the numbers. I'll get to the numbers. Different sources give, give different numbers, but let me give some high-end ones. So cows would require around 50 calories in to get one calorie out. It takes about two years from, from being born to slaughter, right? I mean, in any other industry, that wouldn't be acceptable, right? $50 in for $1 out, it just doesn't make sense. For pigs, it's about 15 to 1, 15 calories in to 1 out. And for chickens, it's about 7 to 1. Now, I, I think there's different studies that, that kind of go a little bit higher or a little bit lower. But fundamentally, those numbers are not great from an efficiency point of view. It's just that the meat tastes so good, right? 
and, and we're used to it. Now, what cultivated meat is going for is between two and three to one. So it's a lot more efficient. In truth, if all if, if humans ate the plants directly, that would be the most um, most efficient way of converting calories to calories, right? But we know that humans love, and, and myself, we, we love meat. And so we think that cultivated meat is it's just a, a seismic innovation in an industry that hasn't really innovated for 10,000 years and is due that innovation. And so you hit the nail on the head. It's all about uh, efficiency. In terms of sustainability, what practices have you implemented in your own business? Well, as a company, Ivy Farm is very much committed to uh, sustainability. I mean, it's at the core of what we're trying to do as a, as a concept for the business, but then also in how we work. Um, so, for example, the building that we're in has uh, solar panels on the roof, and um, it, it generates enough power to actually provide all the energy for the pilot plant behind us, for example. And as we scale into larger uh, facilities, we're committed to use renewable energy and ideally produce it on site um, where possible. So, so I think that's, that's the first thing. Um, our process actually doesn't use that much energy. I know that uh, there's been some life cycle analysis on cultivated meat in general, um, but the process that we use, we've tried to simplify it as much as possible. So the biggest use of energy is, is basically heating uh, the tanks to a certain temperature. It's around 37 degrees to keep them constant. But once they're up at that level, it, it takes very little energy then to, to keep it there. Um, and then I guess the cleaning of the tanks with steam. So it's pretty, it, I mean, it's, it's really efficient um, versus a lot of other processes out there. In terms of uh, cultivated meat, there's a really good study by Delft University in Holland, they're kind of experts on sustainability. And they looked into cultivated meat and made some assumptions. One of the assumptions they made was it can be made with uh, sustainable uh, energy so that uh, unit operations will be powered by sustainable and renewable energy. Um, and their conclusions were that um, we're over 90% less greenhouse gas emissions, around 90% less land use, uh, and high 80s in terms of less water use compared to cattle, compared to cows. Um, and even when you get down to pigs and chickens, you're still in the 70s and 80s percent. So I think you know even kind of best case and worst case scenarios just show that growing only the cells of the animal that you want, being very specific and choiceful about that with an efficient modern process is, is just much better for the environment in, in all ways that you look at it. Seismic innovation, here it is. I wonder if you could give us a vision if we were to look forward the next five to 10 years do you imagine supermarkets are going to be stocked? You know, what's the vision that you see is going to happen in cultivated meat over the next, say, say five to 10 years? Well, it's a, it's a really good question. I think that it is inevitable, it's a case of when and not if, that cultivated meat will become mainstream in, in Western markets first, I would imagine, so that I think the U.S. will, will, will go quickly. The steps will be gradual because it does require capex. It does require cultivated meat facilities to be either be built 
or fermentation facilities to be converted. And so that investment and you know, making sure the engineering works at that scale will, will take a bit of time. So I think the, the amount of cultivated meat produced will mean that it won't be in supermarkets straight away. It will go either direct to consumers or via high-end restaurants first, where people will pay for that experience, where the experience can be fully controlled. And then I think as the unit operations, as the factories become a, a lot more efficient and, and confident at, at producing at scale and the, and the costs come down and some of the margins increase on the product, then it will start to go to, yeah, mainstream supermarkets and people will be able to probably pick up a final product, like a burger at first or, a, as I say, a sausage, a gyoza, a ready meal. And then eventually it will be, you know, uh, mincemeat in a in a package and after that you know more textured whole cuts or um the likes of the likes of bacon and ham and i think it's just a case of when jeffrey so if you push me on timing i think that restaurants will have it um already next year in small quantities i think that in 2025 26 which is when we're targeting a factory to be open that's when we'll get cultivated meat into multiple restaurants. And then I think probably 27, 28 is when it will start getting into some of the, the high-end premium supermarkets. And into 2030, 2035, it'll start to, I, I think, become part of people's repertoire. And then when my kids are older, Jeffrey, I'm looking really to the future. And when they're having kids, I think I'll be in my rocking chair and I will be talking about how crazy it was that we farmed animals on such an industrial scale and that we went through all of the, the kind of pain and suffering from an ethics point of view, but also all of the uh, pollution that goes into the industry, all of the inefficiencies, all the way down to uh, you know, moving the animals around to slaughterhouses, to processing, to then to, to supermarket shelves. Yeah, I think it will be a moment that we'll look back on and say, how did we put up with that for so long? Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. And so much technology and so many elements of our world, I think we will look back on and say, wow, why were we doing that? Why did we not change it sooner, right? Absolutely, exactly. Yeah. Well, what a great initiative. And um, we can't wait to hear more and can't wait to taste. Good luck in the, uh, you know, in the next very short-term future. Thank you. That's all for this episode of Racing Green. Thanks for joining us. Racing Green is produced by myself, Jeffrey Young, Chris Bristow, and Georgina McGiven in collaboration with the Camden Clean Air Initiative. It was recorded at Serendipity Studios, Camden, North London, with music and sound design by Chris Bristow.